0: This episode is sponsored by Revelation Records. Revelation is the label behind Youth of Today, Gorilla Biscuits, Texas of the Reason, and many more since 1987. Right now, Revelation is ramping up with two awesome new releases. The first is All in a Dream, a brand new record by the band Praise, out May 6th, as well as a new EP from Be Well, titled Hello, Sun, out May 20th. You can pre-order both records by going to revelationrecords.com. Our listeners can also get 20% off Revelation-only merchandise by using the code ONESTEP, that's O-N-E-S-T-E-P, at checkout. Thank you for supporting our sponsors, and thank you so much, Revelation. Uh, I grew up and had so many formative experiences uh, with Revelation bands, and I really appreciate you supporting the podcast. everyone welcome to the show Um, today we are speaking with Taylor young a guy that I've known for many many years Uh, Taylor is a musician engineer and producer based in Southern California Uh, he's known for playing in established hardcore bands like twitching tongues and God's hate and he's also the owner and operator of the pit recording studio specializing in all things loud and distorted Taylor has done records for labels such as closed casket activities triple B records revelation records and profound Lore, just to name a few Uh, Taylor is someone who I've known since you were maybe just into your early 20s. Is that right?
1: Something like that, maybe 2009-ish.
0: Yeah, and is someone who really forged his own path, created his own legacy, uh, and I feel is someone that really represents how you can be in a creative space and be dedicated to that and do it very, very well as long as you have vision and guts. So, Taylor, welcome to the show. I'm psyched to be here. Well, uh, you're psyched to be here. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So we are in the pit, which is cool. All right, man. So I give just a real general intro to you. For the uninitiated, So, and you know people come from all sorts of different walks of life to the show. Um, for the uninitiated, people who wouldn't know, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do in your day-to-day.
1: Uh, day-to-day, depending on the week, is uh, usually I wake up in the morning. Uh, take its, I need a two-hour... Uh, re- rejuvenation before I hit the studio, and then you know, have a session or a mix day, or I'm flying to a show or playing a show here or something like that. It's it's usually one of the two. Right. So, you live entirely off of music, uh, technically, yes. What do you mean, technically? Technically, because I uh play in bands, record bands, and manage bands. Okay,
0: so but it all is from like a creative space, and everything would come through a musical. Some facet of, of the music business. For sure, yeah. Okay. So let's break it down. I, I want to ask you kind of like maybe what's in, like an awkward question first. Sure. Can someone, can someone be an effective creative force and not get compromised by the need to make money?
1: No. Because not be compromised? Um, yeah, probably. I feel like uh, Converge never compromised a single thing and they all get to do what they want okay. um but at the same time i think that it's it's hard to move forward without a little bit of it you know i it, it could go either way honestly i think that sorry i'm having a brain fart here well no it's a tough question and like yeah. to give you a to give
0: you a, to go on what you said about converge all yeah. right so let's say converge is like the banner band for that hmm and what I'd be interested in is kind of like, how do you even break down what compromise is because sure. it's like, it's different for everybody. Yeah, Totally. Like, does that mean you're writing shitty records? Cause you know, if you do this, you'll, it will perform better versus following what you want to do. Does it right. mean playing with bands you don't want to play with in a scene you don't want to, does it mean like putting your music in like YouTube videos, like whatever, getting ad revenue, or does it mean playing with people in a, in a band that you don't like, you don't respect, whatever it is. Like yeah. compromise could mean a lot of different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I it is tough. And I would say that in twitching tongues career, we didn't, and i that's why I think we uh took a back burner. you yeah. know Well, twitching tongues is a super interesting example
0: because it seemed like you were poised to be like a next kind of thing, mm-hmm. like before disharmony came out, the hype around twitching tongues was significant. Let's actually push on that though, so with yeah. t- twitching tongues. The first record was Sleep Therapy, is that it? Yep. Okay. When you started the band, from when you started it to when you actually started to get, let's say, like, genuine recognition and people were actually pretty hyped on you, how long was that for?
1: Uh, it was probably only a, a year okay. or so. so. So you did you did well right out of the gates. Yeah. Well, comparatively to the bands we were doing before, mm-hmm. um, whereas, like like, Ruckus wasn't we were playing to 10 people sometimes. And Twitching Tongues, I think our first show had 50 people, the second show had just like we didn't have a bad show until we started touring. Mm -hmm. And we played little parts of the country and, you know, you're not gonna draw a ton in Abilene, Texas. Uh, And then uh, it kind of just grew from there. But Twitching Tongues was
0: interesting because right from the beginning, there was a different sense of like production value, like, mm. like how you recorded, but also like you did really good looking videos. Like you spent time in that band doing mm. really well done stuff. And at one point I'd only heard of Twitching Tongues kind of just like a back conversation. I got to know you a little bit and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, they're, they're a cool band. Like I see what they're doing. But the next thing, it was like almost like in a year, suddenly you were like a notable band. So what was the shift like what caused that shift
1: uh I honestly think it could be playing fests mm-hmm. and because that was like the beginning of of YouTube kind of driving hardcore and showing uh everyone this crazy thing mm-hmm. so i I would attribute some of it to that first this is hardcore video mm-hmm. it was like a it went from it like we were we were already doing well and we did well at the show because we were doing well but that video doubled down on it and i think that did it i did that for everybody yeah, at yeah. the time i think it did the same for power trip it did the same for backtrack um, and it was actually that same year i think that power trip had an insane set at the sarcor too that
0: combination of like technology and where it is now mm mm-hmm. mhm the ability to kind of leap, leapfrog your band leapfrog what you're doing into a new um a new stratosphere cuz people who couldn't be there could experience it Yeah. and that would draw them to the band more. Mhm. All right, so that changes uh twitching tongue starts getting to a different level. What record is this on?
1: Uh but it was that that first video was between Sleep Therapy and In, the, in Lovers No Law. Mm-hmm. Like, right before we did the or you know what? It was the the preacher man's 7-inch was about to come out right because sleep therapy we sat on it for a year and a half before it came out so you were a
0: distinctly different band than what was going on at the time especially collins uh who is uh, taylor's brother collins vocals were like really different and really stood out so what role in this like fuck it we're just going to do whatever we want versus like did you get pushback where you had to make a decision to do it to like, we're just going to do whatever we want? Or were you just like, meh, doesn't matter. Whatever. Uh, it,
1: we, the whole point was to be able to do whatever we want just because we were doing other bands before yeah. where it was like, we were kind of trapped with other people mm-hmm. because we'd had different singers and different bands and it's, and then, you know, there's another driving force. So we wanted to be able to just, do whatever the two of us wanted to do at, at any point in time. That was actually the initial idea of the band. And it definitely never changed, and I do think that's part of the failure of the band, is that we only wanted to do exactly what we wanted to do. We did a couple tours that we were like, eh, about, and then ended up saying no to future ones because we didn't have a great time on those. Yeah. Um. So... In love, there is no law comes out. Yeah,
0: and that's when twitching c- tongues got on my radar as like an older guy who's like primarily listens to Youth of today. Sure, I was like, damn, this band is totally. Not only is this band, I understand what they're doing and they do it really well, but they're doing it in a super ballsy way because you had that song that was about like acceptance of uh, different identities and different kinds of love, mm-hmm. which at the time, you know, in the hardcore scene. I mean, thematically, I think, has been part of the hardcore scene and the punk scene of like tolerance, acceptance, and all of that. Yeah. But on the flip side, if you were maybe someone from the LGBTQ community, you might not have felt that welcome at a hardcore show.
1: To, to yeah. I mean, to a
0: degree, for sure. Um, you guys put up a flag hard on that. And I remember talking, like the people that I was talking to that would be around my generation, um, everyone stopped and took notice of that, at least hmm. my, my peer group, and were like, whoa, this band is serious. And serious in the sense of. It wasn't a song that would be around traditional tropes that would that a band that played in the genre that you were playing and you'd expect, right? It yeah. was such a clearly articulated, very well done. I don't want to say like political statement. I think it was more of like a human statement. Yeah. But it was a real moment where I think things shifted for the band. At least, at least I know suddenly people who would never have thought about twitching tongues were like, damn. I'm listening to this record and actually this record is super cool. So what changed for the band when that record came out? Uh,
1: That was definitely when it it got the biggest explosion, I would say, Mm -hmm. Uh, but also the biggest backlash. Um, I don't think that that video did or song did particularly well. It never really went over live. Mm -hmm. But then the other songs on the record did. Um, But yeah, that was the kind of thing. I think that record came out and everyone in the band was like, I think we could be a band full time. Yeah. Um, and and we did, we tried to. So what was the backlash though that you were getting? Uh, I mean, hate the vocals, things like that. There was a lot of uh, people that maybe just didn't like that song in general. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty much it. But that was the whole band's existence. It was just like, hate the vocals Yeah, every time.
0: Well, it's an interesting thing to me because like,
1: I, I remember the first time I heard
0: the band, I was like, oh, okay. Like, yeah, I, I get what they're doing. And like, that's cool. Like this guy can actually sing. It's good. Eh, it's not, it's not for me, but it's right. cool. And then I had never seen the band. I never actually only saw you guys one time. It was in Toronto when I went that time. I, I saw you um, with, I think it was Angel Dust. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I was on a work trip and uh, I'd left a meeting. I, I almost had to show up in my suit to be there, but- uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> I had to like dip into my hotel room change or sell you guys. And I believe it was touring on that record in Love There's No Law. Hmm. Um, I recall at the time I had a, I was talking to a friend of mine who's like hardcore adjacent at this point, like hmm. older person, been around. And we were talking about it. I was like, yeah, hey, well, you should check out this band. And I was talking about that song specifically and they looked up the band. It was like, you know, the internet's a thing at this point. Yeah. They looks at the band and he's like, this that song does not in my mind doesn't go with this band. I was like, listen to the record. It's a cool record. Hmm. And uh that song was real impactful to me in a lot of ways. And it it made me really feel that there was something very different about this band that went beyond the vocals and went beyond the way that you're presenting yourself. It just made you made me feel like you were a really serious band about doing what you felt was Right for you, and you wanted other people to do that, pretty much. All right, so that record happens. You start getting the backlash that, like, I don't care if your singer has a unique style or whatever it is. Your band becomes
1: big. People are going to shit on you, of course. No matter what. And we didn't know that because we're kids, you know, totally twenty-two-year-old kids. (laughs) But
0: the band then becomes like a serious force to reckon with. Like you're headlining shows, you're doing major tours. Like all of this stuff is happening. Tell us about the transition from that record into disharmony and you don't have to get into like the lineup change or anything. It's totally up to you, but I, I just want to understand when you said why the band failed, it's because we decided to, to, to only do what we wanted. What happened in that time timeframe?
1: Uh, I think we just didn't, we didn't pay attention to, to what people liked about twitching tongues. We just wanted to, to write records that we wanted to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, that was what it was. It was a riff driven record for a, for a band whose fans liked the vocals. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was a little disjointed to some people. I still listen to that record and I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I think it was just not really paying attention to why people liked us. Mm-hmm. So we just did the next thing that we felt like we'd, we were going to do. And in, in, also, you know, signing to Metal Blade and things like that was just things that all kind of just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think that we didn't want to do, like, funky metalcore tours and things like that. So, and the label got sour on us from that, too, because we, we said no to a tour where the label said no Metal Blade band has ever gotten an offer from them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I don't want to be first to five on a six-week tour with this band. Yeah, yeah. It sounds horrible. Yeah. Um, And we were actually scheduled at the time to do uh, some of Bane's last shows and go to Japan. I'm like, those are things that I definitely want to do. So I don't know why we would jump on this. So like, it seems like a a posturing kind of grab, Mm. and and we're just not interested in that. Yeah, But we may be... To you know, have actual longevity, we should have been. So it's, it brings us to an interesting
0: part in your story, and part of the idea where it's like I'm under—I'm interested in where like kind of the business side of you started to develop because you do your chops as a kid. You play in like little hardcore bands. Yeah, there is zero percent on the line when you're playing in in those bands. You just Nothing. want to put out records, have yep. fun. Start a band because you want to do your own thing, and that thing becomes popular, and you get to that crossroads where. You probably, I don't think you realized it at the time based on what I'm hearing, which is if we do exactly what we want, like if you don't find the balance between doing exactly what you want and also meeting the needs of like your label, of the audience that you've acquired, mm-hmm. then things can go south pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So you put out Disharmony. I remember seeing a video of you guys playing Hellfest in
1: France in front of thousands of people. Right, and that was right before Disharmony came out, but we played the song Disharmony for the first time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we get there's a yeah that's what the video is, and that video crushed, and everybody loved the song. Uh, and then I think it was like it wasn't until maybe the second or third single that 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 everybody flipped. Mm -hmm. People still like that song, Mm -hmm. but something happened. I think just the rest of the record wasn't what, because Colin Colin was going for big vocal stuff. Like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of new stuff, Mm -hmm. and I think people weren't ready for it. It seems like it's getting like a, like it's, the record's got like a little bit of a cultish following at this point. Mm-hmm. There were also a couple crushing reviews. Mm-hmm. Like Decibel gave us like a two out of 10. And uh, the who's the nerdy guy on YouTube that reviews? Oh, the guy with the glasses. Yeah, who reviews literally everything. Mm-hmm. So it was like, okay, we got crushed by the general music fan. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did it in a, a way where he like, Brought his friend on, and and they just to, because they were gonna crush it together. Mm. And it was just like, come on, man, look, like, and that and that was for Colin is kind of sensitive. Yeah. Um, he really took it to heart. Yeah, and it and it made it, it made being in a band dif- or
0: being in that band difficult for him. So at this point, the band is what you did for a living. Is that
1: right? Uh, I think this between the studio. Nails and twitching Tongues, it was like that was how I survived. Okay. And there, I wasn't recording as much as I am now then, but it was scheduled perfectly between tours. Right. So you were making a decent living off of it. Yeah. But
0: if you were to lose one, like let's say you lose Switching Tongues, that would cut into how you would be able to live basically.
1: At the time, probably. Okay. Yeah.
0: Um, so Chris Wren, uh, and for those who don't know from Bridge Nine, he once said to me um, – he didn't, I don't think he does now either. Uh, He never made his primary living off of Bridge Nine. Mm. And uh, I asked him why. I was like, why do you do sellies and like waste all this time? And and at the time I was saying it to him because I was pissed off because he wasn't focusing enough on the label. And I was like, do more for the label, like do more for our bands. And Chris is kind of an interesting, he's like another dude that's been unflappable. He looked at me and he was like, hey man, like, I don't do bridge nine. I don't draw my living from bridge nine because I want to do what I want with bridge nine. And yeah. what I want to do might not be what we, you want me to do. And, you know, sorry about that. But basically I do Sully's, uh, my t-shirt company, because I want to always have bridge nine reflect what I like and what I want to do and what I feel like doing at the time. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that anymore when that becomes your primary living. You are always at the behest of the fan base, the trends and music, this and that. He's like, I just don't want to live like that. And good uh, on him, uh, yeah, I, and I completely agree with that, all right, so you hit that crossroads then where you kind of get hit in the face with it, and you know you have a challenge with the band, yeah, um at the same time, you're already like doing professional stuff musically, yeah, from this point, I want to hear about the pit and how what you learned in twitching tongues impacted how you do business uh, as like someone who professionally records people,
1: yeah, it's. <sighs> It's hard to say if they go hand in hand. I feel like, um, I mean, being in Twitching Tongues, being in any band, will teach you how how to run a business essentially, because you're in charge of getting from A to B. And if you don't have enough money to get from A to B, then it's not gonna happen. If if you don't have a van or access to a van, you're not gonna be able to to go on the road. And if you can't make money, if you don't go on the road, so it's like there's, I would say it it was. It's not so much business, but like it's logistical where it's like, okay, well, I have to pay rent. So I have to do I have to make sure that I have enough work lined up and it's a lot of scheduling. And then I guess there's just so many little details and semantics where it's it's um, it, it can become cumbersome mm-hmm. if if you're not doing it right. So I guess it's. It's hard to put into words, but it's like a just some like a bu- there's a business mindset you have to have, or it's not going to work. You have to be able to negotiate. You have to know what your worth is. You have to, all these things. Um, I can't. It's 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 hard to really connect the dots because it's just been such a it's been a slow process. Like I'm 33, and I feel like just in the last three years that the the studio became like the only full-time job. Um, And I think that not touring and being available also made it so that people came to me more. But I never really turned people away, so it's hard to say.
0: Well, do you pick, like, was there a point where you started picking projects you wanted to do rather than just recording whoever?
1: Only now, uh, it took till now to be able to uh, kind of fill the schedule with the things that I think are cool. But also I'm doing a lot of things that I w- maybe would have said not or not been interested in when I was 25. Mm. Um, like I've been doing a lot of indie stuff and even some like death core stuff. So it's like I would say that would, where is where I'm compromising because it was really hard for me for a long time to step outside of my taste. Mm-hmm. And and do things do things on records that other people are gonna like, even if I necessarily don't. Um, that's the only thing that I could think of that where it's like, I, I'm I have to put push myself aside a lot.
0: Well, once you get into anything, and like I, no need to name names in terms of bands, but like when you commit to doing a record that you know you don't like the band. Do you end up liking that record despite it, or liking finding things you like about it, or do you sometimes just end in being like, I still don't like that, but I know it's a good record?
1: I usually love it by the end, still. Yeah. Um, even yeah, the there's a thing I'm working on soon where it's like, well, I haven't listened to this s- style on purpose almost ever, yeah. but I will find the merit in it, and they came to me because they. Like the things I like too, yeah. so and and in the end, I definitely am like okay, I love every aspect of this. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk about
0: multiple revenue <clears throat> streams because right now you do, you do the pit, mm-hmm. and I, I want to talk about the history of the pit, kind of in like a the next section of this. But you do the pit, you still play in bands, yeah, and you get some revenue from royalties and all all that kind of stuff. Yep. And then you also do band management. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And those are the th- only three things you do. I also. I mean, the studio has, like, shirts and things, and then I have, like, a, a studio-branded pedal coming out soon. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: So there's – a there's then let's say, like, a last thing would be, like, kind of, like, merchandise, include the pedal being included within yeah. that. All right. So there's four distinct things. Um, when did you realize that you had – well, first of all, what's the importance of having, like, multiple revenue streams when you are a creative and you're just living off of what you do, like, artistically?
1: I mean one thing especially when you're starting isn't going to isn't going to cut it like and I, I honestly think it would I, it would have been easier if I lived anywhere else mm-hmm. but this is the highest overhead of almost any state mm-hmm. I think well San Francisco probably has it worse and New York City is just as bad mm-hmm. but so, so just to survive I had to make sure that I had a kind of absurd amount of money if I lived in the middle of the country this would have been so much easier All right. but I might not have had as much business okay and, and you also wouldn't have been
0: like a destination who doesn't want to go to California exactly. to record a record
1: yeah
0: um, okay but interesting thing though man like if you, fl- if you think about it this way it's like you, the quote unquote day job right it's like mm-hmm. hey I love what I do at night or on the weekends or whatever that's what i really do but then i have a day job so that would almost be like a traditional like revenue stream like of course you do do something until you get good enough at that other thing but like most people don't really get the chance to stop to like give up their day job right you got to a place it seems relatively quickly where you were able to make music more of a thing for you and not just playing music but anything under that banner sure. of the music industry did someone tell you about revenue uh, uh, revenue streams or did you figure it out on your own just kind of naturally?
1: No, it just kind of happened. I think that and, and this the studio and being in bands came hand in hand because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be able to have control of of the music I was writing. Yeah. Um but like Twitching Tongues would make sure that we made enough money and, and then from tour one nails made money so it was like it just i i also think i got lucky with the first few bands i recorded just immediately exploding um and that led to more work so it was definitely an accidental snowball effect Mm -hmm. that all three kind of worked together whereas people came to me because i did the twitching tongues records Mm -hmm. or and and then in turn it got me you know Rotting Out and Soul Search and all this stuff mm-hmm. that immediately was huge in California. So mm-hmm. then bands listen to those bands and want to come to me. Yeah. Um,
0: let's talk about compromise though for a sec.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, actually, I, I want to tuck into that in a second. So you you play predominantly in like pretty brutal bands. You play any band that's not like a like kind of heavy heaviest heaviest band?
1: Uh, I mean, I guess Twisting Tones was the lightest one. Right, right, right. <laughs> so something that had stood
0: out to me about twitching tongues is like the liberal politics. And again, not that you were like a political band, but like humanistic politics about We a weren't
1: not, but we weren't necessarily. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: You weren't like, if I say a political band, I'm thinking of like kind of ebullition records, sure. like, you know, people really clearly stating their politics and taking like really that becoming almost more important than the music. Yeah. Where twitching tongues, uh, I don't know everyone in the band, but I know you and your brother, very liberal people. Um, yeah. Uh, not Afraid to Say What You Think. That record at least was very standout for me about how you positioned it. But you've also played in like brutal bands that have a lot of like insane topics about like super, super dark things. And yeah. you also played in bands with like all sorts of different people, like a diversity of people. Some of them who uh, I'd say, some of them who have different paths in life than you and I have had. Yeah. Um, how do you make it work being like a very like liberal minded kind of humanistic guy and then playing with such a diversity of people. Like, cause it's not just playing the bands. So when you record bands, I imagine like you'd probably deal with some pretty extreme personalities.
1: Yeah. uh I would say, you know, sometimes you end up being around someone whose energy you enjoy creatively more than personally. Yeah. Um, And then that happens in the studio all the time where it's, you know, somebody I maybe not going to hang out with, but, you know, they can make fucking music. Right. And and that's cool. Um, I wouldn't sit and record a a white power band, but, you know, there are some times where people just differ, you know, and and so you kind of just have to understand that sometimes. Yeah. you brought up something that is, I think, super
0: important. Again, for the audience that might know you reputationally or never have heard of you before, don't aren't music fans necessarily, but are interested in the business side of it. I'm going to speak as someone who knows you. Like, I know you would never. I don't believe you would ever play with or record a band that you were like, oh no, that's like bad, and I won't yeah. do that. Absolutely not. You brought up an interesting thing, though, man, like the idea of to really be an effective business person. You have to have like an open mind that people can be different with an accepted parameter of difference and be willing to be uncomfortable with that. Right. Um, Was that a thing you learned or a thing that you did?
1: Um, It's just a thing I did. And I think it, it comes from maybe as you said before we started that maybe I'm unflappable where it's like, I don't not like afraid to hurt anyone's feelings or, or be around somebody that maybe I don't get along with. So it's just kind of like, well, if, if it gets weird, it gets weird. Mm. Uh, and it, you know, I don't think it ever has, mm. but I, like, I, I don't, I do a bit of vetting mm. before, mm. so I'm not, I know I'm, not gonna have the worst time. There has, I guess, the only time I've had a bad time is when I get somebody that's a lot less pro mm-hmm. than I anticipated. Right. right.
0: So it's mo- it's less about, and again, within a reasonable sphere, it's less about what they believe in personally, but more about how they show up and do the work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I step into my work a little bit when I, on that point? Let's, let's hit it, dude. I think this idea of, um, I'm a pretty like. Very liberal guy. Grew up, grew up with uh, my parents are um, both immigrants. Um, my parents come from. If you don't
1: think I know that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know you know. I'm yeah. speaking for the audience. The
0: the um, my parents come from an ethnic ethnically mixed marriage, so they come from like totally different parts of the world, and they they got tons of heat in from their families about their marriage. So I grew up like in a real liberal household, and not like annoyingly liberal, but like super super liberal, super progressive. But one of the things my parents always raised me with, with the idea, is like, oh, like within reason, like people can have totally different beliefs than you. It's yeah. totally cool, and you don't even need to debate them. You, but you can get into like a dialectic. You can talk about ideas, and nobody has to win or lose. But you can be in this space. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know uh, Thomas from from Richmond? He used to tour with Converge. Little, uh, I don't Brazilian jiu jitsu guy.
1: Uh, I assume he's one of Nate's friends.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And he runs with like that whole career version guys. guys. Yeah. Thomas is like uh, a real old friend of mine and we're like on different sides politically. And I love him and he's a good guy. And if I need like life advice or to talk about something, I'll call him up. And in the business world, I don't work with just liberal people. I work with people from all sorts of different, different perspectives. And I'll work with people who never talk about politics. And I work with people who annoyingly talk about politics. Mm. And for me, it's about doing good work and getting there and and doing the right things and not cutting people out unnecessarily. Now, of course, the caveat to that is if someone says something like crazy, like objectionable, like totally sexist, racist, homophobic or whatever, that's a different conversation.
1: Right, that's not the compromise. That's not a normal compromise. That's That's obvious compromise.
0: Yeah. Well the funny thing though is like money can cause people to do that, like to to be in those spaces. And I don't want to be like ludicrous to think that doesn't happen. Of course that happens. Yeah. But just from my own perspective, something that I I think is super important for business people is to really understand the importance of being able to work with all sorts of different kinds of people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you close yourself off, you're closing off money.
0: Totally, like yeah. good business where you could do, go and do your best piece of work that you ever had with someone who might de- be five d- degrees off from you, like ide- from an ideolo- idealistic point of view. The reason I'm bringing it up is uh, twofold. One, you're just a guy that I've seen be able to walk that pretty easily and smoothly. You are unflappable. I won't tell the story about how we talked about him being unflappable, <laughs> but it's a good, good fucking story. Um, you're unflappable. And you're unflappable in a way that I think like Kurt Ballew is also unflappable as well. It's like just an ability to just be with different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. But the second is, I think in a time politically, it's very tempting right now to like pull on our fences and yeah. uh, cut people out if they believe things in a slightly different way. And I, I think it's like a caustic thing. I think it's like real dangerous. I just want to get your thoughts and not asking you to weigh in on politics, but just from a business perspective, your thoughts on it.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it's well, it's. I wouldn't even say as a business thing it's hard for sometimes it's hard to let like go as as just a person. Like I I hired somebody who came and did some work at the house and they showed up with their entire back window of their truck was the blue lives matter God. blue a thin blue oh line flag like the whole the whole truck and I'm just like, "Well, come on in, Joe." Yeah. <laughs> uh and so that's when it's like like yeah i could have said your, your truck's a joke just can you get the fuck out of here yeah but i you know there's probably a thought process behind that could be he could be playing the game so he doesn't get pulled over i, I don't know before yeah i don't know these things so unless it's a swastika we we're going to do our business and and move on
0: yeah man i i first of all that's a very strong example because if someone pulled up to my house with that i'd be like oh god
1: yeah oh That's it was terrible the the i like i had a feeling in yeah. the pit of my stomach for sure but i was like well this, this is what we're doing yeah and he was not a blue eyes matter type of person you- uh like full for sure an ex-con right so i was like i think he's playing the game right, right
0: like he's, he's doing a little camouflage yeah yeah, man. Like, it's it's a real weird thing for me because, like, coming from punk and hardcore, um, growing up in punk and hardcore, the ideas can be so black and white, like good and bad. You know, yeah. like, especially when we talk about the punk community, it's like, oh, we're we're like god like we're so good, we care about each other. Everyone else is bad, and you're like, wait a second, that is not true at all.
1: Yeah, that's not the 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 thought process. It's not what it should be. Yeah, it's not the thought,
0: and it's also not real. Like, yeah, punk and hardcore has its its is a pretty apt reflection of the real world, but just in a, in a smaller space. In a fishbowl. Yeah, but like something that I really notice with musicians and people who make a living off like the creative space is like, hey man, if you wanna be serious about this, you gotta abandon some small thinking where you're like cutting people out of your lives based on a few degrees off of politics. So again, not the extreme examples, but yeah. just a few degrees off. So if you think about a studio setting, and the reason I brought up Kurt is, like, the two of you both are very unflappable. You're just dudes who can be in, like, a super awkward, weird conversation and not – you don't see – it doesn't seem to bother you. You can handle it. How does that play into the
1: creative process? I guess – I mean, I think um, being being unflappable comes from – li- there's a little bit of apathy. Uh-huh in a way where it's like I just don't care that if we're not talking about the song or or, or how it's going to go or or you know details of the recording then it's I just I just don't care. Mm-hmm. It's fine. And I do see that in Kurt a little bit too where it's like yeah, I don't care what you do at home. We're here to play guitar. Yeah. Um so, I, yeah, I guess that's part of it. Mm-hmm. All right, so tell us about the pit. How did the pit start? Pit started um, officially in 2011, but I was recording bands here and there before that, just taking my rig to places. I took it to people's houses. I had a, a practice space at Downtown Rehearsal, which is like the. There's a giant building downtown that is four floors of like bands from local bar rock to like Mr. Bungle and. Fear Factory and shit like that. And so I had a space in there and would record bands at night sometimes. Um, and then I had one demo do really well. And then it got a bunch of work and it just spiraled from there. Mm. Um, how did you get into
0: recording? Like, well, actually, first of all, how would you even get into music, like punk and hardcore? How would you come up
1: at all? Uh, my Both my parents are musicians. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad had... Black Sabbath tapes all the time and my mom is like a perfect... She's a pianist who is unbelievable and uh, extremely professional. She teaches music now. Mm -hmm. Um, And my older brother went to high school with a bunch of Connecticut hardcore dudes Mm -hmm. and they left stuff in his car and I already liked metal. Mm -hmm. So when... A bunch of like Grimlock and All Out War CDs get left in the car, and I put that on. I'm like, mind blown, mm-hmm. because it's just it's only the it's only the heavy parts <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the time. So I fell in love with it then, and uh, already played drums a little bit. So I just kind of switched gears and got into it fully. And then uh, nobody in my town in Connecticut really wanted to play. What I wanted to play, so I started to learn guitar because I just wanted everything to be gin 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 all the time, and nobody nobody cared about that. So I picked up recording so that I could write songs by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we moved to California, and I knew even less people, and I really started to play music by myself. And then uh, met a couple of people just going, from going to shows and from uh, specifically CaliHardcore dot com. Mm-hmm and uh started a band within like three months of living here found all found the venues i don't know if you remember studio s Mm -hmm. in north hollywood and cobalt cafe and stuff just went to shows met people ended up becoming friends with one of the promoters who was in a big death metal band i joined that band and then um never never stopped and the recording thing kept coming around because i would do demos or for a while i was only good enough to do our like pre-production stuff and then i would do the we would go do the record with somebody and i wouldn't be happy with how it sounded so i just said well i guess i gotta get good at this so that i can be more specific and understand it Mm -hmm. and even i'm still learning too like there's something new and technical that i learn every week i essentially just learned that i have like a problem with my console and i have to go do all the stuff to fix it i'm going to learn try to learn the electronics so that i can figure it out myself
0: so you totally self-taught?
1: Yes, uh, my, my dad got me started with both drums and the tech side of things because he was a tech manager for television and he kinda just had some of the recording gear laying around mm-hmm. and he would show me the basics and then I would l- learn it a little better than him <laughs> over time. When was the first
0: time you charged someone who wasn't
1: your friend? Um, who wasn't my friend?
0: Like, and maybe, you know, acquaintance, but I mean like your friend where you'd be doing it like friend deal kind of thing.
1: It was probably 2011 or so, but that, even then, like the biggest records that I did between 2009 and 2011 were people I met through playing shows. So they were all friends for a really long time. But then I think I got started getting hit up by people out of town, Mm -hmm. maybe around 2012. How did you figure out what you were going to charge? It was really hard. Um, I think the first 7-inch I did, I charged like 250 or something like that. But at the time, because our rent was way lower, we had four people living in the house. Like I didn't have a crazy overhead. I, I had a, the same car that I drove since high school. So to exist, I needed like $500. So it was really easy. Mm-hmm. Um, so So I felt weird about charging a lot. Uh, but over time, you know the overhead grew, so so I had to start charging more.
0: So, how have you figured out how to charge more though? Like is there like a kind of accepted industry rate, or are you just based it on what you think your value is?
1: It was definitely what I thought my value was, and honestly, when I went to Kurt the first time and I heard his rate, I was like can 't charge anywhere near that because he 's a fucking professional yeah. uh, And then, as time went on you know, his rate increased too. So it was like, okay, I can balance this out a little bit. Cause it was, so that's my only frame of reference, honestly. It's just um,
0: recording with other people. And with hearing
1: honestly, others. well, it, I, yeah. And, and when I paid other people, it was like, sometimes it was 150 a day. Sometimes it was like 500 a song. And then it got to the point where like, okay, I can do a better job than these. So I'll charge a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're thinking about your worth, and now I'm just talking about as a as a, a person who records records and produces bands. Um, if you're thinking about your worth, has anyone ever pushed back and been like, no, that's too much," and tried to like barter with you? All the time.
1: How do you handle that? Um, it's tough to. Sometimes you got to just step outside the ego, and you have to kind of see how bad you need the work or. If you need to hold strong and say, uh, "No, this this is the rate," and I, I've done both. There's been times where it's like, "All right, let's do it for this because I think this band is awesome," mm-hmm. or mm, I, like a label's paying. Like when a label barter's with me, that's when I'm like, "I have no fucking, I, I am not gonna stand for that." I'm like, "No, dude, come on." I know how many records you sell. I know how record pressing works. Mm-hmm. Um. So I guess it's it depends on the situation. Um, so
0: there's been times I'd imagine you have to walk from projects.
1: Uh, it usually gets worked out. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's a few times where I haven't gotten them because the price is too high. All right. All right. And there's like okay, like I'm gonna I quote them three thousand and they're like well, we're looking for something for five hundred. I'm like well that's just there's no middle ground but sometimes i'll come back and say well if you can if you can do this and we can do it in this amount of time then then we'll make it work and they, sometimes that works too okay. a lot of th- people need to be f- need to feel like they're getting a deal all too right. so it's sometimes it'll be like well i usually do this for you i will do this mm-hmm. um but it's usually within the realm of what it should cost all right um
0: if you had advice for young people who want to make a living doing this specific thing, like the like being like running a studio, doing their own studio, what advice would you have from like a business perspective and like how you how to grow your career?
1: It's it's hard because I felt like it's really hard to plan it, mm-hmm. um, especially when you work within a certain genre. It's kind of if it's not organic, I don't know how to do it Mm. you know like i i don't think i could say you should advertise because that's the worst idea i don't think you should cold call bands because that's the worst idea it's a Mm. terrible look i don't think you should make an instagram and 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 pay for ads and things like that like i i think that everyone can tell when something is genuine or not Mm um so for me it's just i think the only advice is to be get good at it. Mm-hmm. And if you get good at it, they will come.
0: Okay. I dig that. Do you mind if I tell you how we've grown our business?
1: Hit, hit me with it.
0: So, I've approached Cadence like playing in a punk band. Yeah. And, um, so I worked at another coaching firm before this and before that I was a therapist. And mm-hmm. when I started working at the coaching firm, I remember thinking it was the co- like the corniest fucking place that ever worked. And it was like, all of these preformed courses, like off the shelf courses and the coaching was just essentially like the courses, but in like a one-on-one conversation. And it wasn't what people wanted. Like it was sold like like it was like leadership stuff. Yeah. And it was like this big thought out thing. But it was just like as if the, you, me, and Spencer sat down one day and just said, okay, how do we teach people to be better public speakers? Mm. And then we put that in like a course or coaching. But I, I was kind of interested in the business side because growing up in a punk scene, like you're a business person, you know, yeah. like without without even knowing it totally Sometimes. man yeah you do a zine yeah you do uh, a podcast you do a website you do any of these things you're basically uh, playing in bands doing shows you're basically a business person yeah. to some degree or another especially if you're like coordinating with other people all the stuff that you and i know yeah when i realized that business wasn't this like terrible like you know corporate thing and it's like uh, it's not like just like a black and white dick kennedy song kind of thing where i was like oh like there's actually some interesting stuff there. I became really intrigued about learning how to do how to build a business. I learned, I worked there for a while, did a bunch of stuff, and then I started Cadence. And my first thing was like, I'm never ever going to like uh, cold call people. I'm never gonna do any of the things you just basically said. I'm like, I'm never gonna do any of those things. I'm going to be undeniable. And I'm gonna be so good that we, got, that we get sought out. And not only do we get sought out by um, clients, we get sought out by people who wanna work here. And that's what happened. So five year, five and a half years later, I started with just myself, my cell phone and a notebook. And I was in like the worst period of my life. I was going through like a terrible life situation. I just put everything into doing this, but I only did it as a complete punk. And, and might that might sound weird to people listening to this because like, it's like, oh, well you work in the corporate sector. It's like, yeah, but like, I didn't have peers. I didn't have like, my friends didn't do this kind of business. Yeah. Like there was no one who'd gone ahead of me. And I just did this thing, and I never, ever, ever, ever compromised on one thing until I got to a point where I had to start compromising. Mm. Uh, the, best, the best thing I ever did for the company in the early days was I brought on someone named Jerry, who's also a punk, and uh, she's helped me learn how to compromise really well, figuring out how do we charge, how do we build business, how do we turn things down? Because um, like, man, we used to do work for crazy cheap, like super complex work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just hit a point where I realized um, I gotta do this totally as myself, but I also have to start compromising. And now we're at a point, cause we're trying to play outside of the arena that we've been in. Where Now we're doing advertising. Now we're doing those things. But it took us five and a half years to get there. And uh, even with advertising, it's like, we don't wanna be corny. We don't wanna look thirsty. Like we wanna be like, we want to bring in new people but we want to bring them in because they wouldn't have heard of us otherwise, but they think what we're doing is different and cool. Yeah, You'd mentioned playing, like I kind of primarily play in, a, in in one space, but you also mentioned before the, or I guess maybe at the beginning of the interview, you're starting to do different kinds of stuff, like indie stuff. Mm-hmm. So are you intentionally trying to get out of that, that little space that you've been in, which is primarily like heavy music?
1: No, but I do want to be able to to do other things and have it be a sound that's desired so so i'm working with shakers and tambourines and things that i've thought were terrible things uh, you know and, and learning a lot about keyboards and pianos and things and it's all really from this from this one band that i've been recording the last couple of years um and it's just kind of like well I guess I could just do rock some rock music if 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 I can make it sound good, then that's cool. Mm-hmm. But I, I had some experience with it before. Like I I got good working with like Fender twins and things like that and making things that I don't care about sound awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to understand what about them is awesome to other people and and just just yeah, stepping outside my own personal music box. Because I have a very narrow uh, taste. You were the first person I ever met in the wild who liked Grimlock. Yeah, I'm I'm sure.
0: I've never. I have Grimlock tattoo. It's my email. (laughs) (laughs) When you told me you like Grimlock, I remember doing like a double take. Like, Grimlock? Yeah. And not that I hate on Grimlock at all. It's just like, it's like such a. It's a uh, deep cut. It's a deep Deep yeah. cut. And the fact that you already brought it up in the interview is like true to form, man. Like yeah. good on you. Um, all right, let's go back to compromise. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you hit this point where um I had said to you before the interview, it seems like you need to do less compromise now because you've like really established yourself. Let's talk about like different kind of compromise.
1: Yeah, there, it's a broad term.
0: Yeah, I, I, I want to break it down um really, really, really specifically. It can be, compromise can be working with someone that you think sucks. Like you personally think they suck. Like I actually don't like you, but yeah. I like I like this project. Now I'm talking about both of our worlds right now. Like I like this project or I know I can help or um, like I actually care about what happens here or I like the other people that are associated with it. Sure. So someone. it could be someone that sucks. Or you could be compromising on price. I'm doing this for less, but I'm doing it for like a bigger picture. Or it could be work that you don't particularly like doing, but you like the people that are involved. Or it could be with something that makes you uncomfortable, but you really need the money. Um, When you were starting out, like let's say like in the first, let's say like pre-pandemic.
1: Okay. Just to frame it up. That's a big chunk of time.
0: It's a big chunk of time. But let's talk about like, what role did compromise play for you in like building up your business? Well, And I, now I'm talking about the pit and management, like everything that you do now. Like what role did compromise play back then? And what kind of compromise did you have to get like comfortable with? And also what wouldn't you compromise? Because I was really surprised when you and I were talking earlier and I was like, hey, it probably seems like you need to do a lot less compromise now. And you're like, yeah. oh no, man, I have to
1: do way more. It's and hard for me to speak on it without being specific yeah. but and, and but, out of respect to everyone you don't want to be right. well and, and, I, and I wouldn't say that it, it's not like a personal compromise where it's like I think this sucks mm-hmm. but I'm doing two records this year that 22 year old me would have sc- scoffed at both of them right um and I think that it's less compromise and more just changing yeah growth like yeah. personal growth yeah
0: um, if I think about compromise now, because when you said that, I was kind of like, "Well, wow, that seems so weird. But then I was reflecting on it right before we started. I'm like, well, actually, I'd probably do more compromise now. Yeah, I do, and I think the way you framed it up, me five years ago or me 10 years ago, I was like, I would never do this. Yeah. And now I'm like, oh yeah, I can do this. And actually, I can think it's kind of cool. Um, I also like things like advertising or, or these things. I'm like, there's no way I would have done that before. Yeah.
1: I, and I definitely, in the last two years cold-called. It wasn't like a cold call like, hey, we should meet up and discuss. It was more like in passing while in a conversation. It was like, let's just do a record. And he was like, okay. And now we've done five. Hell oh, yeah, man. So um, I guess it's being able to put yourself out there mm-hmm. more um, and make yourself accessible. I also... Did, I didn't do advertising because I, you know, like paid Facebook advertising, but I made a studio page. Right. So I said, I told, I asked my friend, what is the easiest thing I could do to just get more business? He's like, well, do you have a, do you have a website? And I said, yeah, nobody really goes to it. He said, do you have an Instagram? And I said, no. Mm-hmm. I made an Instagram and literally within maybe six months, the, the work doubled. So I think little things can lead to big things.
0: And they don't have to be huge because, again, compromise is a huge topic. But they don't have to be, like, horrible compromises. But little things, like, especially me, things that I I worry – I'm like a – I don't want to say a chronic worrier. But, like, I never want to do something that I think is, like, too off of what I, I really believe in and yeah. in, in this business I've I've only ever really done it once or twice but in my life I kind of look back and be like ah oh, fuck what did I give up to get this and what did I do there to get that yeah um so in this business I'm I'm pretty tight on it and I'd say the comp I actually compromise way more now but I compromise on things that I think are relatively small and they're just more about me being discom- uh, uncomfortable yeah
1: you're compromising your discomfort in something that is most likely menial
0: yeah and, yeah. and will give us actually a, a good gain yeah because it's not just me. It's like now, like the whole company.
1: So it's just putting yourself aside. And that's, what, that's why I think it's less compromise and just more growth. Yeah. And being a little, being a little
0: like selfless maybe a bit and just being yeah. like, who cares if I'm uncomfortable? It's the right thing to do. Right. Um, all right, man. I'm going to ask you a couple personal questions. Mm-hmm. Um, through this process, getting to where you've gone now, because you've got a pretty storied career. And it might sound weird for you to actually hear it called a career. Like, are you comfortable with that term?
1: Yeah, 33, I feel like I've done enough stuff to not have to feel like a kid all the time.
0: Yeah, all right. Since I've known you, and and your brother, but I'll keep it with you, there was always like, um, you never told me about the pit when you were a kid, but as you've developed, it's almost like the pit was always there. Like, mm-hmm. you never told me you were gonna do all these things, but it's almost like everything you've done, I've always kind of been like, oh yeah, like, yeah, that makes sense. That makes right. total sense. It seemed like there was no other path for you.
1: Yeah, I I had backup plans uh-huh. um, that were like, but it, still in the same vein, like I would go work in television or something because my dad worked in television for years. Mm. Um, or, you know, find some kind of audio job in general. Um, but no, there was nothing else I ever gave a shit about, yeah. even as far back as middle school. Yeah. Um yeah, I never thought about like I actually gave up I compromised a little bit. I gave up a really awesome job offer. Uh that was like I was 18 and I was giving up like $30 an hour to go do audio for for television stuff mm-hmm. to go on tour with DSI <laughs> for 3 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you know what? It ended up being really good. Uh, but then the rest of the tours that band did were really bad. But then I started hardcore bands that did better after that. Yeah, um, yeah that was... My dad was not psyched on that one. Um, all right. So it always just seemed like a destination
0: for you, what you're doing. Like, yeah. You're You're kind of like living your path, basically.
1: Right. Um, how are you going to make this sustainable in the future? I've thought about that a lot. Um, I think... For me, a big thing is maintaining relevancy. And there was a point where maybe around 2016, I felt like there was a drop. But I also think it was kind of a creatively bankrupt year for a lot of people. Um, And I ended up with not a lot of bands just recording in general. Uh, to the point where I did uh, drive for Uber for two weeks just because I was like, well, I need other money to come in now and, uh, didn't have a great time doing that. And then I got booked up really fast. So it was like almost I did it out of self doubt because it wasn't like the money hadn't dried up yet, Mm -hmm. but it was like, I feel like I need to add to this. Mm -hmm. And then that was when I asked my friend, you know, how do I grow? Um, And so I – but I definitely think about the future and it's – it's like, again, it's hard for me to plan in a non-organic way. But I think that if I continue to write music that I really love and that even if some people like it, it will keep – studio going in a sense because I'm going to make great sounding records Mm -hmm. and as long as as long as my skill level and records stay up top then I feel like I'll be able to maintain but I also need to as you're sitting in my very very small studio that I've had for now 10 years or 11 years I do need to expand Mm to 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 grow more I, th- I do feel like I've capped with what I have currently. Mm-hmm. But it's hard living in the most expensive state on earth to expand from what you have. So you do you have a plan or are you just
0: considering it?
1: I have a plan in the sense that I have money saved for the first time in my adult life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's hard to... It's hard to to be able to like okay i'm gonna pocket this much a month because every month is different right. you know and that's the only thing i can do is save for now mm-hmm.
0: this goes back to something that i know played a good role for twitching tongues and i think has been beneficial for you in general the role of um kind of like independent i guess we we'll call it like independent media in like yeah. punk and hardcore and metal right uh people who do zines websites like Instagram accounts, but also people who do video. And mm-hmm. again, I don't want to bring names into it, but there's been an economy that started to develop around these things. So, for example, some people do podcasts and they have Patreons and they do, they do like relatively well and yeah. like, and they pat- and then they're, they're, um, they're interviewing, let's say, like a hardcore person or a metal person or whatever, and they're getting some kind of revenue from that. There's people who do um, music magazines, there's people who do um, video websites and they make money off of presenting bands in Mm -hmm. whatever format but they aren't they they themselves aren't the creator of the music what do you think about that
1: um not a huge fan Mm -hmm. of the monetization aspect of other people's art Mm -hmm. um but i do see the value in the promotion Mm -hmm. but i think that there should be some kind of give back to artists like a royalty be- almost. beyond that yeah just just something you know um it's it's hard for me to say just because you know, i do think that those things did a lot for for bands and they do a lot for bands now but like the the smaller bands look at it as i'm i can't wait to be on there right and then the bigger bands are like where the fuck is my check right um and I know that a lot of bands feel that way mm-hmm. um and I think what makes it worse sometimes is the the brush off of that. Mm-hmm. It's like a um there's there's a lot of that where it's like, "I'm not making money, mm-hmm. you know it's like yeah we we know right we know
0: uh can I give you an an old school example? Yeah, so when I was a kid playing in bands, um we played. The original Hellfest, the one in, in the U.S. Yeah. And um, we were on, like, the DVD of it, and uh, we were stoked. Like yeah. We were like, well, you know, like, we're not, like, we're not really, like, Trustkill Records fans, but, like, I always have respected what Trustkill did. And I, Trustkill's kind of an interesting story. Like, I, I one day I hope I'm going to interview Josh about it, because it's kind of a neat story. Mm-hmm. Um but I remember being on this DVD and being like partially stoked and partially conflicted, but it was like, Oh, we need your pay. Like, we need to know how to pay you for this. And we're like, pay us. Okay. Like that, <laughs> that's interesting. And I'm not kidding. We got a $1 check. We got a check for $1. Oh my God. I think Chris maybe still has it. Chris might have it framed somewhere. And we were like, we were stoked. We thought it was hilarious. Right. Yeah. It's like, how We don't know how many DVDs they made. We have no idea what they're, what they're tracking. It had to be 100,000 copies or something at the time. Well, especially at the time. Yeah. But also like, dude, punk and hardcore people are so interesting because it's like depending on where you're at. It's like if you've ever ran a label, you know, you know what the finances are and how tight things are and how little money gets made. And anyone who's run a label has had a band been like, you're ripping me off. Oh, yeah but also running a label you probably have ripped off people either intentionally or unintentionally like especially around like the dawn of digital like maybe your account you know it's like running a record label it's like your accounting isn't good cuz you're just like kids running something right yeah. you've there probably was money on the table that you didn't give but maybe it was like 500 bucks or maybe it was 5000 bucks
1: but it probably just got put into the next record half the time
0: exactly
1: yeah. man but oh, it's, it's like, like but but technically should that band be paying for that band
0: exactly especially yeah. like let's say a band that's like your big band should they be paying for like your your, your five small seven inches yeah you're <laughs> like your passion project for your friend right yeah um but on the flip side i've been in bands where it's like we thought we were getting ripped off and we totally embarrassingly we were not getting ripped off and also where it's like oh no you owe us like literally thousands of dollars
1: sir you have not even close to recouped <laughs> so
0: here we are we're talking about like And the reason I bring it up into the punk and hardcore side of it is because it's such an interesting microcosm that I think does play out in larger economics. Who should make money on what and why?
1: Uh, I mean, I feel like anyone who's investing time and money should make money. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, like if there's a specific product and... The label's doing a lot, and the band's doing a lot. I I would understand, you know. Well, I guess in the bigger picture, I would say the old world model of labels mm-hmm. is so dead in the water and not necessary. Yeah. Like the you see the SoundCloud people exploding and making millions without any financial help. Right. I know a few who said no to millions of dollars. Like why would I give up this for this? And then there's those those labels still go out there and try to get little bands because the little bands don't understand the deal. You get the, like, okay, we're going to give you $30,000. You're going to get 15% royalties. And to pay back the $30,000, it's an advance on your 15%, which means you are never going to pay that off, mm-hmm. ever, unless you sell 100,000 copies. And I think that the, that's a bit a bit of a sham and that should go away for sure but I'm kind of off track from the topic but mm-hmm. I do think I think that anybody who is putting in work should get paid mm-hmm.
0: but it gets weird right because like if you're like a let's say like uh say the, the record party is there the sorry the band is like the first party the record label is the second party yeah so like being a third party person like someone who does like a, a magazine or yeah. man like now we're talking about like management which I know you do like, all of this stuff. Yeah. When I got involved in punk and hardcore, there had been that stuff previously with, like, big bands, like Circle sure. Jerks and all that. But I was involved in what I think was kind of, like, a lull uh, when I first got into it. And um, then grunge happened and all that. But, like, I don't think there was, like, a properly big hardcore band except for Sick of It All. And I give Sick of It All, like, huge props for being, like, forerunners and how to, like, kind of be a professional band. Hmm. But the next one, so it would be Sick All, Biohazard, but Biohazard kind of played in a different sphere. Sure. But really, the next big hardcore band, and I'm not counting stuff like AFI, which is like a wholly, wholly that's, different
1: It became pop music, band. yeah.
0: But like, Terror was the next band, mm. right? And it's like, that's when I started hearing conversations about like, managers again and like you know label advances and all that and not because of terror it was just a time of music but terror and their longevity has been an interesting one because like how do you make a band work with it's a small sphere or not just a band like even the pit or anything like that it's a very small ecosystem how do people make money um what are the different revenue streams like how many different merch stores do you have um, how many different regions should records get released in, all of that kind of stuff. But then you've got these like third-party contributors who are like somebody who does a magazine or or does videos on YouTube or, or whatever thing, or does a podcast. Hardcore seems from an economic point of view to have become like actual real deal business, but nobody's quite sure about like what the rules are and what the right thing is.
1: That's because it's so off the grid in a way where it's like, Half the time, the labels are doing "Hark the Hark" or "Handshake" is literally a term. Yeah, yeah. Because because the there's like the the business starts out as just okay. I don't know about this, and you don't know about this, so we're just going to trust each other. Yeah. Um, and then it, things as things progress, you get more detail. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to think about, and it's and like I, without putting too much thought into it i don't realize that i know about business it you just kind of do because if you go on tour for one month long tour you're gonna leave knowing things like uh sales margins mm-hmm. and then and all this kind of shit like things that you you don't even know the term for it you're like well if our shirt costs five dollars we need to sell it for ten mm-hmm. because if we don't we can't fill the gas tank Uh, so
0: like what's a way and I don't think that you need to have any answer for this but just from like you're really in the mix with it like again you play in bands you run a studio you do management like you live off music are there ways that we can get like kind of like to a, a I guess like a, a more structured way of how business is done an accepted way of having done, especially I, the reason I'm bringing this third party uh, thing of it is I, I find it interesting. Cause like, can you make music, can you make money off of other people's creation and have that be a, be a clean and a fair thing. And I don't have a horse in the race here. Like yeah. I think there's arguments, good arguments on either way.
1: I think so. Like the, I don't, I have no problem paying PR people. Mm-hmm. I, um, but then the magazine itself makes m- money elsewhere, you know? So it's like so I pay the PR PA person to send out everything and then the stuff ends up in this magazine, but this magazine's making ads, making money off ads from the label as well. So it's kind of like where it's it's almost just an ethical point of view like where like it it has to feel right in a way like there's going to be something where it's obviously like okay well i'm putting up this video of this band playing this massive show and i'm going to collect the youtube streams from that it's like well that's probably not ethical Mm -hmm. in a way Mm -hmm. but nobody's really gonna go out and say that Mm -hmm. nothing nothing really irks me too much that's out there Well, you
0: hit on something that I think is like kind of the key of it is like it's got to feel right. Yeah. Because hardcore is like so, and not that I, again, I don't want to just talk about hardcore, but I think people who would start work like walking the real business world, not real, but like the business world, the corporate world, you'd be surprised like what the differences are. So for example, let's say a sales force and it's like a huge company. It's like, well, who gets what commission? And if you partner on things, does so-and-so get a percentage of your commission and like how does that work? A lot of it just is like, does this feel right, you mm-hmm. know? And then like, there's going to be people who are more, um, I don't want to say like more ethical. Cause I, like, I think someone who's more focused on getting theirs isn't a bad person. Right. And if they're in an environment that, that stimulates bad behavior, then they'll probably act bad. But if they're in an environment that stimulates good behavior, someone could be a little bit more individualistic. It doesn't make them a good or a bad person.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: But like no matter where you are, you're gonna have people who are individualistic, you're gonna have people who are more community-based, who are more willing to do that, and those people might give up too much or might be taken advantage of. I think for me, it's a, it's always about like business, no matter where, might have the illusion of structure, but a lot of it is still just kind of like people being like, I don't know that much about it, you don't know that much about it, it's kind of a handshake, yeah. but in the business world it is. There are contracts, but there's a lot of just kind of like unspoken handshake agreements on mm-hmm. things. I think the frankness of being able to talk about stuff and meet at the table and, like, negotiate in, in any situation is what I think is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. And I think coming up in Punk and Hardcore, there's a general learning of how to do that if you're going to be successful no matter what.
1: Right. Yeah, I, I'll – we just uh, took a little less money than normal for a certain show mm-hmm. just because we want to play the show or – or like because we know the people, and we and we know we know it'll it'll be extra good. Um, and then for the bands I manage, like I think I've gotten paid by one of them. I've gotten paid by literally one of them three times, and then the other two I I'm like waiting until I don't want to take money if if there's no money on the table. Mm-hmm. So, but I think just think that that's an ethical thing where where it's like well I I have had managers and i know and i've seen how it goes so i kind of know what to expect and how i could act mm-hmm. but i want to i want to get what i would have wanted out of a manager yeah. or i, or I want to give what i would have wanted out of a manager it's kind of like
0: be the band that you wish existed when you were a kid
1: which is i think that's the whole point playing music
0: yeah, yeah. um totally uh, i think if you could write a record that you yourself would have wanted to hear when you were a kid that's like a huge gift Yeah. All right, man. As we're wrapping up, I have three questions for you and they're difficult questions. So the hardest ones I'm going to ask you. All right. They've already been broad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Here's the first one. I'm going to be very specific, though. Okay. What's one thing that you've realized about yourself as a business person that you really like? And it doesn't mean that you can't you can't get better at it, but you're like, yeah, I'm really good at this thing.
1: Like, spe- Oh, as a businessman. Yeah, as, um, as
0: a business person. So uh, there's two parts to the question. What's one thing that you say, I know I'm good at this in terms of business and I'm, I feel really good about it. And then what's one thing you know you need to get better at and you're working on it?
1: Uh, both are still tough, yeah. Um, I, guess, I guess I'm good at finding the middle ground and still being happy with what I'm walking away with. Um, even if it comes from, like, uh, money or, or just, you know, on working on the record and things like that. And, and also, in general, kind of subconsciously understanding what I think they want out of it. Mm-hmm. So I think I have a good handle on people mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, I do think I need to be better at uh taking criticism mm-hmm. uh and not even criticism as like um, the, the I guess it's not even a business thing it's just like if sometimes it'll be like well we want to do this and I'll think it's an attack mm-hmm. where it's just well no, we just want it. we just want to do this it's not it has nothing to do with you some and so, so sometimes I think I can take things too personally when it's really just about what they're trying to get for a product.
0: Right okay. Uh, second question. This is a really hard question, man. You can change this any time you want. Even mid-sentence, you can be like, no, I don't think this is right. Um, what are, for you, the three most influential in your life, musically, heavy hardcore bands or metal
1: bands? Oh, this is... Uh... I'm gonna throw Grimlock in there just because we talked about it, uh, and I know you're. I know. I know you feel the way you feel out of unfamiliarity.
0: I don't feel bad about Grimlock yeah, yeah. at all. I just uh, Grimlock was a name that I would see in zines growing up, and yeah. I was like, oh, like of course. I think of Grimlock, I think of the 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 um, Transformer. Grimlock. Which is what
1: they're named after.
0: I I didn't even know
1: that. And they I'll, had Hulk shirts. Okay.
0: Yeah. I have no. No dog in this fight against Grimlock yeah. at all. I that's just, that's
1: just for me, and I know it's just for me. I'm, I know that other people appreciate their stuff because I have found them all. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the band that, like, there's this one song where I was just like, how, why they can do that? You can just be heavy the whole time, and it doesn't matter? Um,
0: have you met anyone from Grimlock? I met all of them. And, and how do they feel about your, your celebration of their band?
1: They love it. Yeah, I'm. A, I think I'm in the liner notes of one of the reissues or something like that. Um, and I've been tattooed by one of them. The other one is actually he manages one of the most famous Marvel writers of all time. That's how deep in the like nerds stuff they are. Is that the singer who was like a muscle dude mm-hmm. now manages Roy Thomas, who like created Daredevil and That's amazing. and like all this huge shit. He was actually in a photo. With, he was in one of the last photos of Stanley alive. Wow! Yeah, good for him. But they credit it as just Roy Thomas and and Stanley. Uh-huh. But there's another photo with this It's like the same photo with the singer of Grimlock <laughs> standing behind them. Um, anyway, uh, I'll have to throw it to to Hatebreed uh-huh. um, because I think that was the band where it didn't matter if you liked heavy hardcore you liked Satisfaction. If you liked Youth of Today, you liked Satisfaction. 100%. Um, It's just a perfect record. It's 14 songs and it fucking flies by. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm going to also throw it to just, this is just out of sheer volume is All at War just because they have so many records and if you like one all-out war record there's no reason that you're not going to like them all because they do this one thing and they crush it every time and they feel like they're doing the biggest thing every time which is i think that's just cool
0: yeah uh, unbelievably consistent band yes all right third question uh this is the easiest of the three um where can people find you where can they look you up? How can they get involved with anything that you that you do?
1: I'm literally everywhere. If you type in my name, <laughs> mm-hmm. from discogs to Bandcamp to to Facebook, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. wherever, mm-hmm. Um, or you can f- search Twitching Tongues, which is a very searchable name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm I'm out there. Um, I try to be available everywhere mm-hmm. so that I can be accessible, and I will try to be accessible forever.
0: Heck yeah. All right, man. As we're closing off, any last words, anything that you want to share? Uh,
1: I don't think so.
0: All right, man. Uh, I just want to say uh, it's awesome seeing you grow and do all your stuff. You know, like I talk about you almost as if like I'm 900 years older than you, but like, you know, I'm in my, in my late 40s. Well, that's,
1: that's hardcore years talking because when I'm 33, which means I'm now 55. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally,
0: totally. But it's been really cool watching you go from just like meeting this this youngish person who played in cool bands and did these things to go and do like legitimately cool stuff that you've gone on to do and just stay yourself the whole time so i'm super proud of you it's great knowing you and thank you so much for
1: being on the show thank you for having me this is awesome great not too broad uh it was, it was a little broad for for my narrow mind <laughs> <laughs>
0: awesome everyone all right we'll see you in the outro and spencer drop the beat Awesome conversation uh, with Taylor. It's neat being in this space because like, I've seen it in so many different um, photos and videos. Uh, some good friends of mine. Shout out to Punitive Damage. They just uh, did their record here. I know they had a great experience. You know, it's an interesting thing. I, I know that someone from the corporate world who might have uh, watched this or listened to this might think like, "How does this relate?" Because it's all business. And one of the things that say is like, "Punk and hardcore starts from this like very ethical place." And I think I think that's a real deal. Like 100. But I also think that the more that things are, the, the stakes are higher, those ethics become a little waver. It's like, do we want that big show? Do I want to make money? Do I want to live off of what I do? If you think about as you're going in the corporate world, it's like from job to job to job, promotion to promotion to promotion, it's harder to stay true to who you really are. And I think the thing that uh, I've taken away from uh, the conversation today, and also I took away from when I was talking to Kurt, is like, you got to build yourself a world where... Um, the compromises you make are are not about your soul and they're more about like well like what little things can i shift on that are going to allow me to do cool things Um, or allow me to do things that build the business that probably aren't that big a deal. So how do you like reframe? How do you grow? The way you do that though, is you got to take risks. You got to be willing to put yourself out there. You know, that idea of um, multiple revenue streams, I think is one of the most important things. So, you know, that idea of like, you're working your day job, you've got your passion at night. Well, maybe you start looking for ways you can diversify in your passion. And if you're a corporate world person, It's about getting into a job and doing a good enough job. In fact, doing a job so well that you've kind of become the name where, yeah, you still need to compromise. Maybe you have to do it more. But those compromises aren't about your soul. They're not about who you are. Uh, So Taylor is such a cool example of that. So a huge shout-out to Taylor, to The Pit, to Twitching Tongues, all the bands he's associated with, the labels that are associated with them. Um, And then if you get a chance, please go listen to Grimlock. All right, I'll talk to you later. One step. That's me.